we had a customer, they were on vacation and someone came to their door, a, a suspicious person, and they got the alert. And so the wife thinking quickly says, my husband and I are inside, we're cooking dinner. This burglar believes them. And because he does not want to break into a house where he thinks somebody's inside, he actually walks across the street and robs their neighbor. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. All right, everybody. Today we have Andrew Thomas, who's the co-founder of Skybell, which is a startup pioneering a Wi-Fi enabled video doorbell that enables people to answer the door by using their smartphone. Andrew, how's it going? Good, Eric. I'm doing good. How are you? Doing great. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Skybell? Absolutely. First off, I appreciate you uh, for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Um, As a founder of Skybell, as you mentioned, uh, we make a video doorbell that people answer from their smartphones so they can see, hear, and speak to the person at their door from their phones. And I'm a co-founder along with a few other folks. And we started Skybell three years ago. And we went on Indiegogo, raised $600,000, and went off to the races developing uh, this video doorbell. So three years later uh, to the present day, we're now partnered with Honeywell, Alarm.com, uh, Monotronics, Comcast, big companies in our space, um, you know, doing some good B2B deals and also uh, you know, marketing our product through retail channels and through consumer channels and just helping people build safer homes. Awesome. Great. So tell us a little bit about the product. How does it work exactly and how much do you charge for it? The product itself is a, a hockey puck shaped uh, piece of hardware. It replaces a current doorbell and has a button, video camera, microphone and speaker. When somebody comes to the front door and presses our Skybell button, uh, Skybell sends you push notification to your smartphone and then you can see, hear and speak to the person. So you see live video of the person at your front door you can talk to them and they can hear you and speak back to you. Um, it's $199 and it's made in the USA. It also has a motion sensor. So if people don't press the button, it can still activate and tell you that someone's at your doorstep. And it does this whether you're at home or at work. And it's pretty cool because most people, when they break into your house, they actually come to your front door to find out if you're home by pressing your doorbell button. And they do that when you're gone. So We've actually helped a number of customers actually convince burglars to walk off their doorstep while they were at work. Wow, that's crazy. Can you go into a little more, uh, I guess, talk a little bit about the, one of the case studies perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. We have this pretty wild story. We had a customer, she and her husband were in Europe and they were on vacation and someone came to their door, a, a suspicious person. And luckily they were on you know, Wi-Fi and they got the alert. And they saw that there was a, a suspicious person at the front door. And so the wife, thinking quickly, says, my husband and I are inside. We're cooking dinner. And this burglar believes them. And because he does not want to break into a house where he thinks somebody's inside, he actually walks across the street and robs their neighbor. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty incredible. So 
you know, we're not thrilled that, that the other neighbor, you know, was, was robbed, but it's incredible to think that from Europe, you could prevent a robbery from happening in real time. You know, before now, home security systems have always reacted to a break-in, um, and hopefully the police come in time. And now with, with the Skybell video doorbell, you're getting that alert in, you know, real time. You are talking to the person at your doorstep, and usually it's a salesperson you don't want to talk to, or it's the delivery guy, and you can tell him to you know put your package on the side of the house. But sometimes it's somebody who has bad intentions, and in those cases, you know our customers are very happy they can convince these people that they're home when they're actually not. Great, awesome. So people on the show love to hear about numbers. What numbers can you talk to about the business? Yeah, you know numbers. Um, the big number was was how much investment dollars we got in the beginning. It was zero. We got no money when we started this company. And so we went on Indiegogo and we did a crowdfunding campaign. That was three years ago. And in five days, we raised $100,000 on Indiegogo. And that campaign capped out at $600,000. So we went from a company with an idea that nobody wanted to, wanted to back to a $600,000 cash infusion from Indiegogo, 5,000 customers, a proven idea. And that's the point where we were like, we've got a great idea. We're going all in. So that was about three years ago. And now, you know, we're a nine figure valuation. It's incredible to think that this happens so quickly. And, you know, I credit our team and our, and our product idea. We had a perfect, uh, you know, product market fit, the right idea at the right time. It just resonates with customers. So we're grateful. We're shipping, you know, thousands of units every month. Uh, we're partnered with Honeywell, Alarm.com, Monotronics, Nest. They're all pushing our product because it's helping you know make people's homes safer. It's an easy home security solution. So, yeah, we're we're just thrilled. In three years from zero to to 100 million plus has been pretty incredible. Awesome! Congratulations on that. So, the how how is your growth being fueled right now? Is it these big partnerships that or what's I guess what's the big thing that's working for you guys in terms of uh, customer acquisition? You know, about a year and a half ago, everybody in our space was really looking at the customer and everybody wanted to own this idea of the smart home, right? The lights and the locks and and the thermostat and they wanted to own everything. We didn't we didn't, you know, pick that route. We decided that a well-designed point solution or individual product that does one thing really well will serve customers better. And so we did that. We said, here's an easy home security product that gives you, you know, monitoring, live monitoring of your front door. And we went that route. But instead of going to the consumers, we actually went and designed our platform so it would work with the biggest companies in our space. And those companies are the home security companies like Honeywell, right? They, they make product that uh, powers ADT or Pro and Bay, Bay Alarm. So we went to them and Alarm.com and we said, this video doorbell would be great as part of your platform. They already have great home security solutions. They just didn't have anything at the front door. So we designed our platform so it would work seamlessly with their platforms, and they loved it. And so now, you know, we're grateful to have, you know, distribution deals with them, and that's powered our adoption to this point. Um, and now we're in a position where we have revenue coming in from those deals and the great partnerships there that we're maintaining and, and accelerating. And we carry that momentum over across the B two C, and now we're doing, you know, the Facebook ads and the lookalike campaigns and and reaching people on Instagram and, and you know serving the B2C side of things. But to this point, we've been driven largely by these bigger B2B deals. 
Got it. That, that's so interesting because uh, I think uh, one of the competitors in your space, I'm not going to name right now, they actually reached out and they wanted to start with the ads first instead of uh, the partnership. So it sounds like you guys went partnerships first. And then once that worked out, you guys went uh, you know, through the kind of standard digital marketing stuff, right? That's right, Eric. That's an astute observation. So that you know, we took two different routes um, to, to high volume, right? And, you know, we, we chose to go the B2B route. It doesn't quite, uh, involve so much in terms of marketing spend and big budgets. Um, you know, it's, it's nice to ship product to companies that have established distribution and to benefit from that. So just a different model. But like I said, now that we have those relationships, we can come back around and, and look at opportunities in the B2C side and look at what they've done well and, and what they haven't done well. And, and start reaching customers in, in new ways. So we're very excited about it. What What's interesting about the Internet of Things, right? We are at ground, you know, ground zero for Internet Internet of Things. Um, Can you talk a little I, bit about what that means exactly, just so everyone knows? Sure. So the Internet of Things is this name that we assign an industry of connected or smart products. These are pro- hardware products mostly that you can control from your from your phone. So a great example is the Nest thermostat, right? So you can change the thermostat in your home from uh, your smartphone remotely or when you're in your house. But there's also built-in artificial intelligence into that device, which automates um, raising or lowering the temperature of your home depending on how you like it and the temperature outside. So um, that's one example. Ours is a video doorbell, right? And there are smart locks that you can lock and unlock from your smartphone. So you can let a dog walker inside your house when you're at work. Um, all of this, this whole industry is built on connected products that actually that actually tie into the internet. And they connect through the internet and you can command them from mobile apps or other products even. So this industry is burgeoning. I compare it to uh, social media and I compared to the time when Friendster was still around. I mean, that's how early we are in this process. There's a lot of companies that are gaining a lot of momentum, but there still hasn't even been the attrition that comes with big, big, you know, marketplaces. So we're at, you know, ground zero, and there's so many ways to reach a homeowner. You can do it through direct sales. You can do it through retail. You can do it through B2B. And then on B2B, you can do it, in our case, through home security companies, but big companies like um, AT&T are getting involved. And Comcast, they have a whole smart home platform you can buy. So, um, Or home builders is another example. So I always talk to entrepreneurs and say, don't forget about B2B because there's so many different ways to reach a customer. It doesn't always have to be um, you know, through B2C channels or retail channels, for example. And so when you were first starting out, let's say your, your very first big BD deal, how did you go about, uh, what was your process? You could just you know, bullet point it out. Yeah, you know, it's a long process. The, the unique thing about B2B is that you have longer you know, cycles. So, uh, you know, for, for one of our bigger deals, it actually took about two years from the first time I spoke with the, with the person at that company to when we closed the deal, it was like just under two years. And a lot of stuff happens. You know, sometimes it deals on, sometimes it's off. There's delays. It never goes as quickly as you want. Um, you know, the big lessons I learned about closing B2B deals is you've got to identify the partner. You've got to identify what they want. It's just like B2C, right? You're telling someone a story about how your product will benefit them. You just got to do that in a slightly different way for B2B. You got to understand how the employees of that company who make a decision, you got to find out how they're motivated. Is they're the people who are going to decide whether or not your product works. 
So you got to validate your product as the right solution, but you also have to validate, I'm sorry, you have to validate your product, how it's the right solution for their end customer, but you also have to pitch on why your product is the right solution for that company, right? So operationally, there might be factors, um, like for example, a Comcast, they have truck rolls. They roll trucks and they have installers that come and install an Xfinity home platform um, you know, for a customer. They're going to have a say in that decision. And so when you do a B2B deal, you have to account for the different departments that, that approve a, a decision like purchasing a SkyBell video doorbell. So there's usually a product person, there's an operations person, there's customer service, there's you know, customer service and support, um, and then there's the engineering team. Engineering team, you know, doesn't want to spend more money and assign more engineers. So if you have a, a platform that has, you know, proven documented APIs, for example, like we do, it's an easy, it's an easy integration. It's a fast integration. So you want to think in terms of their motivation um, in the different departments of a big company that decides to buy your product. Got it. And just to go back a little bit, I mean, when you're first starting out with these BD deals, are you initially just, you know, finding their email and then reaching out to them through uh, email or is it something else? You know, it's usually something else. In some cases, these people reached out to us and other cases I knew I wanted to speak with them. So, you know, the first thing you do is you check your network, see if you, you know anybody there. That's the easiest and best way to get in. When that doesn't work, you got to get creative. And one of the hacks that I use is LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn's a great tool for this. It's very underrated. And, you know, if I have found that you can't go after the decision maker right off the bat. The trick I use is you actually go and you find out who reports to them and you add them on LinkedIn and you talk to them first. Send them a nice note, introduce yourself and say you've got a good idea that might help their team. And that usually gets... Uh, you know, get someone to accept your LinkedIn request. And then little by little, you keep doing it and more and more of them will, will uh, you know, accept your request. And what happens is they always know who, you know, if you have mutual connections. So once you get one and then you reach out to the next, they say, oh, this guy knows Johnny too. Okay, I'll accept his, you know, invitation. And then you can start sending messages and say, oh, you know, I caught up with so-and-so, you know, would love to speak with you. And um, that's how I've done a lot of my my uh, BD prospecting actually is, is on LinkedIn. And then, you know, to cap off that plan, that example is then you can go back out to the main, the main contact and send them an invitation. And then they'll notice that you are connected with, you know, four or five of their team. And you're more likely to get, you know, an accepted invitation and a response in that situation instead of just a blind, you know, it, you know, a friend request or connection request on LinkedIn. Interesting. So it sounds like, I mean, for most BD people, they're going directly to the source. You know, they might use a tool like emailhunter.co just to find the direct person, reach out to them. Um, you're saying you're playing the longer game here where you're you're adding, you know, kind of people that know that person. And then I guess it sounds, I mean, to me, it sounds like a longer process. How much longer is it increasing the time by? You know, maybe two weeks or so. Um, it's not a terribly long process. You know, I'm I am kind of a fan of of those kind of tactics. I know you've, your site's loaded with awesome tools and people should definitely use them. Um, but sometimes, you know, I've, I've gone so far as to find out that somebody was going to be on a panel and have gone to that panel in real life and met them in person. And I closed a deal that started that way. I flew to a city and went to their panel and went up and caught up with them after. And I found out that they were on a panel because I followed their Twitter pretty closely. You know, so you just got to get creative and there's tools that make that easier. But, you know, sometimes you got to get on a plane and go meet some people. 
or you know do some some slower tactics but that's bd is slow i mean it's again two years for a for a you know business deal got it okay so I mean, you know, I think about one of my friends right now that that's doing BD for a startup, and you know, to me, I, I think it, you know, it doesn't seem like it's really panning out for them. But he keeps, you know, he keeps hitting hitting his head against the wall. So I'm wondering, how did you guys, when you, when you guys were figuring out whether it makes sense to do BD or like whatever other uh, strategies, you know, how do you guys uh, map out what the big opportunity is? Do you guys have any kind of framework to, that you guys use? Hmm. You know, there's no fancy framework. I just call it figuring it out, right? You just figure out who who has good distribution. When you go B2B, you're doing it because they have good distribution in many cases. So for us, a, a hardware company, we wanted companies that had an existing complementary solution with great distribution. So home security companies, um, MSOs like uh, AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon, you know, people who are already rolling trucks, installing routers, you look for complementary pieces to you, people who want to say yes because it enhances their offering or makes their offering stickier to their customers. So that's that's sort of how we did it. You know, you look at the players in the space and find out how they're motivated, and then you see if there's alignment there. If there isn't alignment, you can't create it. You can't force alignment, especially with B2B. You know, they have to go and they have to get 10 smart people to make a decision. And if it's you know being forced, they're not gonna do it. So if you can't find natural alignment and can't find economic alignment, um, it's not going to work. And then at that point, you really do need to, you know, shift and pivot and find a new focus or find a new customer. Great. So I want to jump back to your your Indiegogo campaign. How did you tell us about that experience? How did you go about raising the first hundred k, and then how did you get it to six hundred k? What what was the magic? So wow, the magic. To be honest with you, I think the video is the single most powerful thing you can do. You've got to do a good, when I say good video, you've got to do a compelling video, right? It can be unpolished as long as it's captivating, you know, and authentic and it, and it quickly disseminates the value of your product. No one's going to wait around for 30 to 45 seconds into your video to find out why they should, you know, support your campaign. So right off the bat, if you look at our campaign, we go right into what the product was we talk about it. We show how it would be used. Within the first 15 to 20 seconds, people know exactly what they're they're dealing with. And then we go into the details like camera resolution or multiple user accounts, night vision, things like that. So if you look at the campaigns that do well, they all have strong videos. So that's the biggest thing for success. If you don't have a video, I don't think you have a fair shot. Um, the other thing is you really want a compelling why. I think that still holds up. You need to tell a strong narrative. Tell people why you're doing this and, and how you're going to do it. I think people want honesty and authenticity, and people are backing you as much as they're backing the idea in crowdfunding. I mean, you got to remember the crowdfunding, think about what it is. Somebody is buying your product before it even exists. It's pretty remarkable. So, you need to disseminate that you have a great idea that they want and that you're capable and honest and you're the right person that they should trust to execute. When you look at crowdfunding, not everybody does, right? So, you know, there's there's a trust factor you have to accomplish. You do that through, you know, quality video, you know, looking presentable, looking congruent to your product, um, and then having good assets, like good creative assets. Pay a photographer, have high-end photography because people might say, oh, well, it's crowdfunding you know, give me a break. But you can't say that because people are used to seeing beautiful photography every, you know, everywhere else they look. 
right? On, on websites, um, you know, great examples like anthropology and women, they're used to seeing unbelievable styled photography and then they go to your page and it doesn't feel congruent with the quality. So we paid, you know, a photographer to do some good, good stuff for us in the beginning. Um, so content wise, that's what you got to do in terms of how to launch it with a bang. What you really want to do with crowdfunding is you want to get to about 30% of your goal within the first you know, 24 to 72 hours. It's really important to get a big chunk of your asking price. So if you want to raise a hundred grand, you got to get to 35,000 ish pretty quickly. And if you do that, then the algorithms will help you out. Indiegogo and Kickstarter will put your campaign on their homepage or they'll put it in an email or like what's hot. Then you get that, you know, viral effect. That's what you want. So you know, good ways to do that are email lists, you know, have your email list ready to go, have a campaign ready to go, get people onto your Facebook page before you launch, uh, build up that community as much as you can, Re you know, reach out to influencers before it hits and get them excited about it because everything that you can do in that first 72 hours will help you significantly. And as I'm sure you, you know, with your campaigns and your marketing, you know, there's some compounding, you know, level of compounding interest with this stuff. So if you can get an extra you know, 15,000 in the first, you know, 48 hours, that'll be an extra 75,000 on the back of the campaign. Right. So that's what happened with us. We, we ended up at about 600,000, you know, by the end of our 30 day campaign. Uh, but we, we got hot right off the bat. It was a hundred grand, I think in the first five days. Got it. Great. That, that's, that's fantastic. And I, I totally agree on the video front. I mean, we had, uh, the, the, one of the, the founder, co-founders of Squatty Potty from from Shark Tank, and it's that, you know, it's that tool that helps you uh, poop better. But it's like, how do you educate the world on on how to poop better? Like nobody wants to talk about that, right? Uh, so their video, they had a unicorn uh, that was pooping out rainbow ice cream, and it was just totally educating. It was, it was it was really funny as well. So when you when you talk about great videos, I, I think about that because you know, remarkable video. I think they spent like two hundred grand on it, but. You know, they sold $20 million worth of, of uh, Squatty Potties in 2015. So just goes to show you the, the power of video. So totally agree with you there. That's a great example, Eric. I mean, a phenomenal example. And the other good one that I remember is uh, Dollar Shave Club. That kind of had a similar feel, right? Those two companies did such a great job in being informative, being funny, and being creative. And like you said, great point. Like, how do you talk about a Squatty Potty? Well, you do it with a unicorn. I mean, that's is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I do want to talk about the, the design of the product. So it, lo it looks great. So what is, I guess, what are, what's your background? What, what are your co-founders' backgrounds? You guys have uh, backgrounds in industrial design? You know, we have a couple of people and we each have a different background. So I got started doing some uh, SEO work. I, I worked for Google um, early in my career, right out of school. Did that for a couple of years. I lived in China and I just would hang out with entrepreneurs in, in China and and then I did some SEO work for some folks um, and then got into mobile app. And then when I was about 27, I wasn't really happy doing that. I really wanted to be a startup founder. So I told my roommates I wasn't going out anymore until I was a, a startup founder. And I just started reading everything I could get my hands on, all of the books. And, you know, it was a year later we, uh, we started Skybell. So I brought a lot of online marketing experience. Um, you know, a lot of deal making experience uh, to the fold. And then my partner, Joe, he's a brilliant uh, engineer. He just knows how to make products. Um, so he handled all the engineering. Uh, Desiree handled a lot of our operations. She's a brilliant tactician 
an operator, and then Greg and, and Tina provided um, additional support with, um, you know, legal and, and CFO. And, you know, we're just a, a hungry group that just wanted to get together and solve this problem. When we started the company, you know, we couldn't find anybody doing this. It was real blue sky. And a lot of people told us we couldn't do it. And we're kind of the group that just, you know, like many entrepreneurs, just doesn't take no for an answer. So, you know, we just, uh, we started the company in May of 2013, I'm sorry, June of 2013, and we shipped our first product seven months later, and we squeezed in an Indiegogo campaign in between. So we moved pretty quick. Love it. So let's, uh, I, I want to talk about the, the design. So how did you guys go about, you know, I think I read one of your interviews talking about, you know, having to go to China and all that. So what, what was the whole, what did that whole design process look like? Yeah, you know, our product is actually made entirely in the USA. So we manufacture our product in San Diego and we've designed it in-house. So the process was, to be honest with you, Eric, we we kind of just said, what would a doorbell look like if Apple designed it? That was our goal, right? That was the aspiration is how do you make this, how do you make a doorbell exciting again? Um, how do you make it, you know, useful? You have this motion sensor speaker video camera, you know, high def video camera, LED button with colors. Um, and how do you make it useful? How do you make it, how do you make it beautiful? Like you said, the thing that we realized early on is that people would be evaluating our product based on how it looks because it sits at their front door and people care about how their homes look. Um, so we went with this minimal design. We tried to make it as, uh, you know, as minimal and clean as possible. So we also try to get it as small as we could, but you know you're packing a lot of technology into uh, into that form factor. So we went with a circular device that seemed to be very popular in Southern California. Um, you know, it, it's pretty small and pretty pretty clean, like you said. So it really just was a process of of tinkering, and the aspiration was what would a doorbell look like if Apple designed it. Got it. Okay. And so if somebody's starting out, they say, you know, I want I want something that looks like Skybell or you know. They, they want to design something like, like, like how Apple would do it. Who would they go to? What, you know, are there any, you know, forums out there? Are there any sites out there? I'm just wondering, you know, what, what, what you guys did in the early days? You know, in the early days, in the very early days, we had had experience making a consumer product before. So we had the engineers around, we had the CAD designers, and Joe had had experience engineering products and producing them. So if you're going to start from scratch, though, what I recommend people do is they take an idea, they go to a, an engineering house, a prototyping house, and you do a 3D design of your product. Work with them. You gotta work with an engineer who knows how to you know, cat out. Do a, a rendering, 3D rendering, do a 3D printed prototype, and then go on Indiegogo and do a campaign. See what you've got. Go tell people what it's gonna do, spend a couple thousand dollars on a video, and what's amazing about Indiegogo now is they formed a partnership with Aero, Aero Electronics. And Aero is, is the biggest company no one's ever heard about. They're like a you know, multiple billion dollar company. And they will give you some engineers to prove out your concept on an engineering level. They'll consult with you. You can hire, you know, if you want full resource, resources from them, you can hire them to do it. They supply many of the world's electronic or, or technology products with their components and engineering help, cloud, server. I mean, it's amazing what Indiegogo and them have done with this partnership. So you can go from an idea to a full-blown uh, product by launching on Indiegogo, 
and then working with Arrow to execute on that idea. They'll help you with production and everything. I would tell your listeners that it is not easy to make hardware. It is not for the faint of heart. And it's amazing when it works out, but it is very, very difficult uh, to the point where I don't think my next startup will be hardware based. <laughs> no, that, that's that's super helpful because you know I, we don't talk to a lot of hardware people on this show, so I, I just wanted people to get uh, some context. Super helpful for me too. Um, so tell us, I mean, things have seemed like you know you, you talked about it just being really hard a second ago, but it seems like things have been smooth sailing. So tell us about one big struggle you faced while growing this business. You know, the big struggle, the biggest sort of lesson we learned, I think, was when we released our first product. Um, and I think there are parallels to software-driven companies and people who sell information and expertise. Uh, but the lesson is you want to be pretty tight with your product when you launch it. And I think the lean startup makes a whole lot of sense. But I caution people to evaluate what, they, what qualifies as an MVP and how quickly you can alter it. And with hardware, you cannot alter it very quickly. So the biggest mistake we made was launching our first product. We did not do enough testing on it. We did not have you know, enough customer service ready to go. We didn't have contingency plans for what happens if people are unhappy with their product. I mean, we knew in concept, but we really didn't iron it out as well as we should have. And it, it hurt our brand. It, it really did. Customers expect things to work like an iPhone you know, in hardware. And that's unique to us, but it, it's true of any company. People want things to work like the best alternative that they've used. That's what they compare you to. They don't care if your circumstances is you were crowdfunded or you're just starting off. A lot of people want it to work the first time commensurate with the best alternative that they've used previously. So that's what I would, I would say. Going back, I wish we were better prepared for that. I wish we didn't put it on Amazon so quickly because we got a lot of bad reviews on that first product. So candidly, I would withhold from selling things too soon on any retail website or any outlet where there's, um, you know, review processes, iron out your product, uh, get it right and be ready because how you handle that adversity is going to you know, define your brand. Love it. How old are you right now? I'm 32. I just turned 32. 32. Okay. So what's one piece of advice you give to your, let's just say 24 year old self? You know, there's so much advice, but if I get one, um, I wish that the 24-year-old version of myself understood the power of intention and the, the ways that we can create what we want by focusing on what's possible and not focusing on, you know, the fear side of things. At 24, I made a lot of decisions based on scarcity or fear or out of what I should have done. Um, and, you know, around 27, 28, I did a lot of work, a lot of examination, self, self-actualization and really realized the power of intention. And, you know, when you have a goal and when you can define what that goal is and that goal is backed by a sense of desire and purpose and you can, you know, quantify it and qualify it and you can visualize it, you can achieve it. When you hold space for that sort of a goal or intention, it, it tends to come true. And the more I play with, with intention or the law of attraction, the more I focus on it, the more and more it seems to be true in my life. And um, it goes back to like I told you, a year before I started Skyball, I told my roommates I was going to be the founder of a tech company. Um, 
a couple, you know, a year or two ago, I, I told my girlfriend I was going to be a writer for Inc. Inc.com and Huffington Post, and I'm now a contributor for both of those. Um, a lot of these things that I've set as goals and and held intention for have come true. And um, if people want to learn more about that, you know, some of the resources I listen to are Abraham Hicks, uh, Tony Robbins, you know, Dr. Wayne Dyer is fantastic. Um, Jim Carrey, the actor, my God, he's got some great uh, videos on YouTube, some great quotes about how he's used the power of intention. Um, Steve Harvey, you know, Denzel Washington, Will Smith, all of those guys, um, they all use the power of intention. So that's, I wish I learned that earlier. That's helpful. And is there any book that you'd recommend around intention? Oh, there's plenty. Um, e Squared is a good book. I'm reading the biology of belief right now if people want a little more of a molecular level on on how our thoughts uh, change our biology that's pretty interesting there's a pretty uh interesting documentary called three magic words uh that was very profound Uh, but the most profound thing the thing that sparked it for me the very first thing is a cd series by dr wayne dyer called making your thoughts work for you and that that CD series changed my life. I was, you know, had a company I didn't really like. I was with somebody I, I you know, probably uh, wasn't happy with, and that, well, you know, that CD series, that audiobook, turned it around for me. Um, but my favorite book of all time, the one that has helped me out the most, personally and professionally, is How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Yeah, that's one of those books that you just reread over and over and over, right? You're absolutely right. I am on fourteen right now. That's crazy. That's more times than I watched the Titanic. <laughs> um, anyway, so no, that, that's that's great. No, that's I think that book and the hard thing about hard things by far the most recommended on this show. So um, yeah, great book. Um, yeah. One, one new question I'd like to ask now, I, and you know, you coming from an online marketing background, uh, I think you probably like this one. So, what's one new tool that you added in the last year that's added a lot of value? Mm, that's a good question. I would say content. I mean, you look at you know, a lot of what you, you preach and the power of content. I, you know, I always knew it existed. And as an SEO person, I knew the power of content, but we, you know, we used to wield SEO in different ways than just, than just pushing content. Right. But so I got out of SEO for, you know, a couple of years ago and now being back in a sphere where I need, um, rankings and I need to drive, you know, marketing online, I have been blown away by how much quality content really drives, it drives clicks and it drives, you know, sales, but just the way that it helps support your authority on a subject, um, you know, even on a real human level, like the, the content that I write, you know, helps me get speaking gigs. It, it helps me, um, you know, do, do, you know, partnerships with people and, the way that you can use content now is incredible. And that content for me has been a lot of article writing for, for Inc or Huffington Post. But I think video too has just become tremendously important. So, you know, we, you know, we, we, we use Snapchat now we use, um, you know, YouTube ads, YouTube ads are fantastic, uh, for us. Uh, but I would say, you know, again, I'm, I'm more of a traditional guy. You've, you've probably got, you know, amazing, uh, tips and tricks that I haven't even heard about yet, but, what, what's effective for me is the mindset and how you use these tools. So one thing that I've learned a nuance is a video that is unpolished and is honest and authentic outperforms a video that is polished and has it all together. 
And so we're starting to use video. You know, that's not a new tool, but we're using it in a new way. We're trying to tell tell more founder stories. We're trying to to be a little. I'm trying to be a little more unpolished, like in my own Instagram stories, you know, or my my Snapchats. And that's a challenge because that ties into you know your mentality and being okay, you know, being seen and being vulnerable and being a little more raw and unpolished. I'm a person who's always been kind of a perfectionist, so that's been hard for me. But the more vulnerable I am, the more honest I am, and the less I try to touch up my videos, it seems the higher the engagement, the higher the influence and the higher the impact. So that's what I'm challenging myself on right now is to continue putting out content that is more honest and real and less polished. Yeah, I I love that comment because, you know, even though people talk about content marketing all the time, you see Gary Vee talk about, you know, people saying him saying, you know, people need to do more content. Um, And I, I think people are taking that for granted. But here's the thing, like it actually feels good when you're putting out content, it, you're actually providing value to people and you're getting comments back. And the thing is, like what you're doing, you're doing uh, Instagram stories, Snapchat, and then you're, you're appearing everywhere. Um, it, it takes, you know, a couple touch points to, you know, eventually get a sale. But the thing is, even if your content doesn't generate sales, like you still feel like like you're helping the world, which is a lot better than just, you know, going and, uh, you know, acquiring some links and trying to, you know, beg people all the time uh, in, in the good old days of SEO. Right. So, yeah, I, I totally <laughs> yeah. feel you on that. It just feels better. I don't know. <laughs> it does feel better. Like if you can accomplish your goals while also empowering somebody else, like that's the win-win I think we need right now. Like, I don't know about you, but I look around at our society and like the way things are going. I think, I think we need to be more empowering and more uplifting to other people. And when I go to your website, you know, I'm, I'm uplifted by seeing your accomplishments and, and the fact that you're sharing information and sharing your value and experience, it does uplift and empower me. And you know, I would consider myself to be good at this. Imagine the people out there who are listening to your podcast and reading your sites and reading your tutorials and your, you know, your programs who don't have any experience in two years, like these could be the next, you know, me or you. It's incredible to think that what you're doing right now could significantly impact somebody's life. Right. It's crazy. And, you know, for us, it just seems like we're having a conversation, but, you know, this can seriously change a couple of people's lives. So, um, anyway, I mean, this is this has been great, Andrew. Um, what's the best way for people to find you online? The best way to find me online is on Twitter. I am at AP Thomas. And on Instagram, I am Doorbells Y'all. So those are the two best ways to reach me. My website is at andrewpaulthomas.com. And then on the Skybell side, we are at skybell.com. All right. Awesome. Andrew, thanks so much for doing this. Absolutely, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week, and remember to take action and continue growing.